remember the time that the Department of Health discovered previously undiscovered bacteria and viruses yeah. in the subway? New York's transportation system is the New York of transportation systems in terms of its biodiversity. <laughs> let's let's hit it. Let's get into yeah, let's it. Do it. We got it. <laughs> Welcome to Sanity Check, a podcast devoted to staying informed and sane in the time of Trump. I'm Ben, and I'm joined today by Andrew and Mike. We're recording on the hey. evening of Wednesday, March 15th. Today is day 55 of the resistance, if you can believe that. If you enjoy what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, the Google Play Store, and at our website, SanityCheckPod.com. So, um, what are your uh, your Best and worst um, news moments of the week, guys. I'll, I'll throw in a best. Um, is Mattis saying that climate change is real and actually something that we need to worry about? Totally against basically everybody else on his team. I, I like agree. that. I would agree with that. Um, he even said that it was a major global destabilizing force currently. Which, you know, it is. It, it's, so. it basically appears that he is the only grown-up in the executive branch of the government currently. So, so I can go off that, because I think my worst... I'll, I, there's so many, as always, so many bad ones, but I just saw a headline today that uh, a larger proportion of the Great Barrier Reef is bleaching than than had been expected or that anyone was prepared for. So that's that's pretty bad. Uh, that, that stuff doesn't come back quickly. <laughs> Or at all, um, yeah. And uh, so that's my worst, I guess. Best. I mean, I, I this is sort of obvious, but I've been happy with the continued retreat slash abandonment of the American Healthcare Act as more Republican senators sort of signal that they're not sure about this. And as Trump says, it would be good for, you know, that. Please don't call it Trump Care. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's been nice to see that even in the even in the time of Trump, you can write a bill so bad that you can't pass it. Uh, yeah, that 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 works for me because I, I was going to say certainly the the moment that I smiled a bit, which uh, you have to take in context, um, was when the CBO released their report. And I was like, dear Lord, there's no way this thing can possibly pass um, since it would, you know, kill tens of millions of people, which is not something you should be smiling about. But, you know, in this context, it, it was uh, something that I, I thought was good news. Uh, in terms of worst news, I would say you know, just the, the somewhat scattered reports about Trump continuing to coalesce power and send sending beachhead teams into various parts of the federal government and just really getting his tentacles into everything and then cutting or proposing cutting everything good that the federal government does, um, presumably in order to find some way to enrich himself and his uh, CEO buddies. So that's bad. So then we still... I be, Andrew, you still owe us. Oh, I still owe you a worst. worst. Yeah. Um, you uh, can. I I don't feel like I want to collect right now necessarily. <laughs> no, if, if, if you want to, 
if you want to pass. Well, I'll just go with the counter that somebody has to get up and say that climate change is really bad, and uh, Mm. it's still here and still bad. All right, anyway, so we mentioned that CBO report, um, and I would say that was probably the the top news story of the week. Yeah, so what did the CBO report? I mean, this was the CBO, Congressional Budget Office did their review of the American Health Care Act to try to project the um, what it would impacts, and they were extremely bad. Uh, Both in the short term and in the long term. Yeah, it sort of starts off real bad, and then um, it got really bad again. So specifically, um, they said that by 2018... 14 million people would lose their health insurance. I know, which... Now, that's results. I mean, that's a lot of people to kick off insurance in a really short period of time. Yeah, I mean, you you have to admit, it it would be a very impactful bill. (laughs) And they then project that moving forward 10 years, that number would increase to 24 million, which apparently is a conservative estimate as the internal... White House analysis, which was leaked, actually estimated 26 million. Which uh, you you will note, both of those numbers are, I believe, a little bit higher than the number of people that were added to the health insurance rolls under the Affordable Care Act. So we would actually be moving. It wouldn't. It wouldn't even be reverting. It would be making things worse. Um, so the Republicans have been obviously not mentioning that aspect of things too much and have been focusing instead on the fact that the Congressional Budget Office also said that over 10 years it would save the federal government something like $300 billion, which of course is because the federal government wouldn't have to help pay for 24 million people to have health care. But it's it's actually not a very big savings. I mean, saving... 30 odd billion dollars a year in the scope of the federal budget is pocket change. Well, and it also, it's not, it's kind of an accounting illusion because it's the, the costs that wouldn't be paid by the federal government would just be paid either by States or by individuals. But that would not be a tax, though. That would be a big win. (laughs) But, you know, so what uh, what I mean is it's not making the system better or more efficient. It's just pushing the costs around. Yeah. Except there is one exception where you would save some money because some people would just die. Right. Rather than consuming expensive health care. And so that's the savings. But I feel like that... That's a pretty nasty way to get to savings. Um, the other the data point I really liked about the CBO estimate was that um, young rich people might save money, but old poor people would end up paying more, and not just a little bit more. No, uh, no, a lot more. About seven hundred and fifty percent more. Um, there were estimates. I, I I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was something like a thirteen thousand dollar annual increase in premium costs for an elderly person who is making around $25,000 a year. So that's, you know, you'll know more than half of their annual income. I've got a little quote here on this one. Um, 
Lower-income individuals who are 64 years old might see the greatest net increase in cost, going from paying $1,700 under the ACA to $14,600 under the AHCA. So that's a pretty that's a pretty noticeable. You're going to notice that one. That's about a thousand dollars a month. <laughs> but if you are a 64 year old who makes you know 125 thousand dollars a year, you're going to get a tax break. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and an is, HSA that you can like contribute to. The opposite. This so basically the CBO is confirming that this is the opposite of how you should do a health care bill. Like. It's taking the people who are the least well-off and the most in need of care and really sticking it to them <laughs> on behalf of healthier, younger, and richer people. But it's giving at them a, a certain lot. Point, at a certain point, it sort of stops being an insurance and just like adding a layer of extra people you have to pay as people pay directly for their health care. Tell, wait, tell me more about that. Uh, so if you take a, if you if you take all the young sick people, the young healthy people away, leave only the people who need health care to pay the premiums to get their health care. There's no distribution of risk. There's no distribution of cost. Oh yeah, right, right, right. It just becomes like direct payer for health care, and but also there's all these people in between who you also have to pay. It's sort of it's that very American thing where it's the worst of all worlds, like. We love that world. It doesn't take advantage of the cost-spreading mechanism of insurance, but it also has all these middlemen taking their cut between you and the doctor. Well, hey, full employment, right? I guess. um... (laughs) Your eye roll is audible, almost. (laughs) Well, and there there are provisions that directly address that, such as, you know, increased profits uh, in the form of the continuous coverage provision and I know it really sticks in my craw that the continuous coverage incentive is says let's it's bad for the government to get money from people let's give more money to the health insurance companies right. like I instead. I would not be in favor of the continuous coverage provision even if that money was going back into a, the government's pool of money to subsidize health care but uh, the, the I, what argument one could possibly make that it is beneficial to simply use that to increase the profit of insurance companies is beyond me. Um, then, uh, again, why there's going to be a removal on the the cap uh, on health insurance CEO salaries and the taxable income there, again, is also beyond me. Oh, that's just a pretty... That's like a straightforward sweetener. If you're an insurance executive, you might not like this bill because of how it's going to throw your markets into chaos. And so I feel like that that's what is addressed by that part of the law, is they're like, don't worry, you can make more money. Right. Personally, anyway. Personally, yeah. You personally will get more money, but it's not a bribe. Yeah. Right. It's no. part of a law. And then when your insurance company collapses, you can get a larger balloon payment. Here's another fun one. The uninsurance rate among people ages 50 to 64 who are below 200% of the federal poverty level would leap from 12% uninsured to 30%. So that's that's another pretty solid uh, middle finger so, to Americans. <laughs> so under this system, is it is it going back to the ER, 
the last minute ER visit model of healthcare? Probably. You would certainly see a large increase in that. I mean, they, there's no other recourse for people who don't have insurance. There was some. But there, there may just be no recourse. That's that's the libertarian option. Well, well, it, sure, but it nobody. Is still, it is still illegal for ERs to turn away people in need, at least for, for the moment. Yeah, I, the... I think Andrew. The problem is that. There's never going to be enough of a constituency to actually enact the real libertarian healthcare solution because it's because it's really evil and most people really 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 don't like it when you tell them about yeah, it. It's sort of a libertarian final solution. Yeah, I mean, and so like no joke. And so you, we end up with this thing where people try to get it get as close to that as is politically palatable but it's all this it's just terribly inefficient and also evil you know so yeah we get the er well not to mention and then that's just paid for out of the state and you know that has to get paid for it's not like that's free i i know a lot of er docs and they would not turn people away <laughs> That's good. Wouldn't do it, but it does pass on the most expensive possible form of healthcare to the state or to the hospital. Who does the state end up eating that cost? It gets spread around. Yeah. Um, it, it it depends on what kind of hospital it is: private hospital, public hospital, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the hospital will certainly have to eat a certain amount of the cost, and then it'll just get moved up the chain. I, I do think that the end result of this CBO report was to drive even more Republicans away from it. Um, I mean, this, this was certainly not helpful to Paul Ryan and the three or four other members of the uh, the House who actually want to get the thing passed, at least in its current form. They took preemptive action, the Republicans did, um, to try to... Discredit the CBO? Yeah, discredit yeah. the CBO. And they were like, the CBO doesn't know what they're doing. Some some moron said, you know, this isn't really what their time is best spent on. And I'm like, what, scoring congressional bill like bills impact on the budget like the congressional budget office like there's their core function the director of the cbo was hand-picked ironically by tom price yeah. who was the secretary of health and human services which well, is why I mean, they came up with an even more conservative projection of losses of insurance people than the white house imagine what a liberal cbo would have come well up with. no it's, it's, this, a, it's, I, a non, I, it's a non-partisan yeah, I want to push back on that a little bit because... Okay, fair enough. For the moment, it seems that the CBO actually remains nonpartisan in the sense that they are they do math. Like, they use statistical techniques to try to predict the impact of bills. And they're, they never get it exactly right because it's about the future. But um, That would be impossible. They were the closest estimate to what ended up being the outcome of the ACA of all the estimates. They didn't get it perfectly, but they were the closest. Um, and it is really important that we have some, like at least a couple of offices where you can ask them questions like, how much will this cost? And they'll give you, they'll <laughs> yeah. just answer the question as opposed to filtering it. So right. so I think it's important not to take it as a given that, that it'll become a partisan office and also it appears not to you know this this analysis 
I'm not a healthcare marketing special analyst or anything like that, but it seems to line up with what's in the bill, you know. So it, it, I don't see any big anything that's getting massaged here. In fact, if anything, uh, it was harder on the bill than many healthcare analysts expected. A, it had a lot weird. Of, it was harder in some ways and easier in some ways. The money it may have been a little bit easier yeah. on the 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 highest number that I had seen predicted for um, uh, people losing their insurance over ten years was around fifteen or sixteen million prior to the CBO report. So the their report was was rather more aggressive on that aspect of things, and I I think that was very important since that that's the most palpable uh, indicator I think for normal people to understand. Well, it's an interesting point though because I'll bet there's a constituency or a faction of Republicans in the House who are much more interested in the money part of it. Oh, than definitely in the you know, the people's lives being destroyed part of it. Well, and they, I'm sure that they feel that it's not saving nearly enough money. Well, it's like Andrew was alluding to before. Their their ideal world would be one in which everybody paid for out-of-pocket as much medical care as they wanted, and if they ran out of money, they died. That's what they would prefer. Pretty much. But so, um, Andrew, you also mentioned the White House analysis, which uh, I, you're talking about the Office of Management and Budget, right? Which leaked their their analysis leaked of the plan, and it was similarly. There were some slight differences, but it also basically was like this plan is going to be a huge disaster, and kill lots of people. And I think, I don't know. To me, it it sort of seems like Trump, to the extent that he ever is committed to anything, which is very little is sort of backing away from this a little bit and declining to have it be associated with him so closely and sort of... It seems to me to be setting up to pin it on Paul Ryan should it all fall apart. Well, definitely. I mean, as as some comics have joked, I mean, Trump will put his name on basically anything, right? And he has specifically requested that this not be called Trump Care. <laughs> So right. What does it take to to make that happen? Um, and what I've thought is very interesting is that Breitbart, which has become the dominant, not just the dominant, but as Andrew has pointed out, al- almost the monolithic source of news and opinion in right wing media, um, has come out very strongly against the bill, and they've been kind of in, in, in a long-term war with Paul Ryan, um, so I suppose that's not entirely surprising. Um, but there there have been whispers and questions um, about whether or not at this point there is a faction of the Republicans who would like to use this as a lever to discredit or even uh, have Ryan removed. Yeah, I'm not sure I see that. I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure there, there's that much organization. Breitbart has always hated Paul Ryan, and they still do. Um, so I from the but Breitbart isn't in the House of Representatives. So I think you know, in terms, of, somebody has to be the Speaker of the House. I think they had enough trouble filling the seat. I assume they want to let him keep it. 
but he would certainly have diminished clout if this bill goes down in flames like it looks like it might. Oh, I think he's already been diminished just from his uh his refusal to to show any courage or <laughs> you know fortitude. I mean, he's a terrible person and a and just a really terrible person, but that's also a job that is impossible to do. I mean, totally Boehner, you know, you've got the Freedom Caucus on one side, and then you've got people who are trying not to get primaried. You know, you got the you've got a basically ungovernable coalition of people with with mutually exclusive ends, and then you're supposed to keep them together on stuff. You know, it's it's one thing to do that when you can all just hate Obama together. But now that they actually have to make laws, it's a it's a whole problematic thing. And that's what sort of pushed, I guess, about half an hour ago, the Post put up an article that uh, Ryan says, uh, uh, necessary improvements can be made to the health care plan in order to pass the House. <laughs> nice use of the passive voice, guy who wrote the bill. <laughs> yeah, seriously, mistakes were made. Yeah. And, you know, presumably, if we're talking about passing the House, that that probably refers to the Freedom Caucus. Well, I mean, he's in a real bind, because he's in the House, he's got people pushing him to the right, but in the Senate, he's got people who need it to move to the left if, there's, if they're going to vote for it. And uh, you got to pass both to for it to be a law. Well, I think I mentioned this uh, this last time we talked, but I, you know, it, it really puts into sharp relief for me how effective and and frankly incredible it was that President Obama managed to pass the Affordable Care Act. Well, he had sixty votes in the Senate too, which really helps. Oh, that helped a lot. Yeah. Although I mean, it was uh, a whole. I, I remember it was a whole thing. I mean, you know, the uh, I, I don't remember the exact composition of the Congress when uh, Clinton took over in 92, but he had pretty solid majorities as well. Um, and, a, and a much more moderate opposition. I mean, it um, barely worked this time. You know, healthcare, right. there were... Passing health reform is really hard, no matter where you come down on, on how it should be done. Um, and so I, I, I just think President Obama deserves an enormous amount of respect for... Uh, for, for for getting that done. So we'll do an hour on how much we miss Obama some other time. I mean, <laughs> but I was thinking I was thinking about how like so the healthcare thing is not going well, and then in other things that aren't going well, there's their travel ban 2.0. Yes. Yeah. So we actually have good timing uh, this week in that pretty much right before we we started to record. Uh, there was breaking news out of Hawaii where the federal uh, circuit judge there, um, I'm not sure who he is yet. Um, U.S. District he, judge Derek Watson. Thank you, Andrew. Derek, judge Watson ruled in favor of a temporary restraining order against Muslim Ban 2.0, and that will prevent it from going into effect nationwide tomorrow, March 16th. Yeah, they're really hurting themselves by going on television and talking about how they're going to ban Muslim. Like, yeah, <laughs> they're so bad at this. And, you know, 
I mean, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Stephen Miller went on TV and said this: the policy outcome is going to be identical. And you know, I I I only had time to very quickly skim the um, the judgment. Um, you know, I'll, I'll read it more carefully after we after we're done. But it, it seemed to me, in some ways, that this ruling was even stronger than some of the rulings um, for the first Muslim ban. Um, I mean, in, in that th- this one. The temporary restraining order was decided um, pretty much entirely um, on the religious establishment clause and stating that this was a straight up uh, violation of the religious rights of Muslims, which is I mean, not that's what the, I'm saying, which the, is not the way that the it was decided the first time around. Yeah, but you've got Donald Trump, who is the guy who signed this executive order throughout his campaign talking about how they were going to ban Muslims. You know, like, they've they've made it such that anything they do in this area is going to... You're going to have to look at it with the point of view that, they're, that they would like to ban Muslims and they keep trying to... You know, it would be one thing if they had kept their mouths <laughs> shut. You, <laughs> you mean the point of view they explicitly said again and again and again. Right. I mean, what... It, you, it, you know... It, it's still on DonaldJTrump.com. The policy of putting a nationwide Muslim ban in place is still there. Right. So, I mean, they're... I don't know. If I thought they were smarter, I would think there was some strategy here where they were trying to rile up the base with having this executive order keep getting overruled and, and frozen and restrained. But I don't think they're that smart. I think... I don't know. I think Steve I'll, I Bannon think, really hates Muslims. Well, and generally <laughs> speaking, they have shown a pretty high level of incompetence on pretty much all matters. Exceedingly of high, yes. Yeah, well, I, I mean, think in addition to uh, Bannon hating Muslims, Trump thinks he should just be able to get to do whatever it is he feels like because yeah, he's he, the president. He, I think he thought that presidents rule by fiat. Um, you know, and th- this has been a, a bit of a... A well, wake-up call for I him. saw an analysis that said, you know, it, it, it seems as if he thought he could run things the way that he ran his privately held family company. Where, right. Which is not how things work. Which well, is not I mean, how things no. work. And He should try running an actual company. Well, he's never even run a... Uh, like you're saying, he's never run a public company. You know, he's never had a board of directors. He's never had any kind of oversight whatsoever. Now he has 300 million bosses. <laughs> Well, and every time there was any chance of there being any public oversight in the form of lawsuits, he just settled them in order to uh, prevent any of that information from getting out. Right. But so I take this um, Hawaiian development... This is this is heartening to me because I was afraid that the kinder, gentler Muslim ban might um, end up being technically legal in a way that, you know, because the first one was so clumsily put together that it had a bunch of obvious flaws in a way that the second one, they were more careful about it. Right. But the, you know, the Judge Watson in this case really tore apart the Trump administration's logic behind the, uh, you know, the ban. I mean, they, yeah, the government tried to argue that they were, couldn't possibly be targeting Islam as a religion because they were only banning people now from six countries with Iraq removed from the list. 
which it obviously makes up a very small portion of Muslims in the world. And I'll just read a, a quote from, from Judge Watson about that, who said that, quote, the illogic of the government's contentions is palpable. The notion that one can demonstrate animus towards any group of people only by targeting all of them at once is fundamentally flawed. The court declines to relegate its establishment clause analysis to a purely mathematical exercise. <laughs> wow. I mean, Judges, that's a pretty harsh smackdown. You can usually yeah. read between the lines and tell when they think something is really stupid. And there you don't even really have to read between the lines. It's um, That's some, it's, like, Antonin Scalia-level yeah. shade. Well, and he, you know, I'm not going to read this stuff out, but he, he went through and he quoted pretty much every public instance of where Trump or one of Trump's top surrogates in public said something really racist. And he was like, and he said, you know, how can you separate the intention of this executive order from the things that are contemporaneously being said by the people writing it and advising the people writing it? Well, they're in such a, they've got such a problem because there's two huge problems. On the one hand, like you're saying, there's abundant evidence of what they're really trying to do. And then on the, on the, in addition to that, there's abundant evidence that their cover story is bullshit. That, like, the thing they say they're trying to do right. is not accomplished by the executive order. Because, you know, if you look at terrorist attacks committed by people who immigrated from those countries, there aren't any. Well, and Trump commissioned a report from our own intelligence services, you know, spearheaded by the Department of Homeland Security to back up his claim. And, of course, it leaked. And uh, it came to the conclusion that immigration policy was a really bad way to prevent terrorist attacks and that there was no evidence that it would have any positive effect on preventing terrorist attacks. And it said, stated that um, in their analysis that domestic-based terrorists who originally come from other countries tend to have been in the United States for a quite a long time and have become radicalized after the fact. So, I mean, e e even his own... Probably by our mistreatment of them. Well, or their home... Or it's white well, dudes. That's, that's or it's Timothy situation. McVeigh blowing up a federal building. I mean, yeah. all the, like... <laughs> if you think about big terrorist attacks in the United States, it tends to be, like, white people who are local or people who immigrated but were radicalized later or people who came from countries that are majority Islamic but that aren't on the list of banned countries. <laughs> yeah. Saudi Looking Arabia. at you, September 11th, you know, yeah. like... So, I mean, this this executive order is hopelessly troubled on a whole bunch of fronts. Troubled is a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't accomplish... Yeah, like the judge said, the logic that it claims to be based on is completely non-functional and absent so presumably this will get kicked up the chain oh yeah um, the whole thing. to you know an appeals court and depending on what happens possibly the supreme court and so i guess we'll have to see what what happens but so far i mean pretty much every major ruling has been on the side of good if you will um so that, that you know that is heartening it's uh the the judicial branch of the government so far has been holding up its end of the bargain. And, uh, th you know, this was um, 
this was some nice news to to have right before we started recording. I do expect them to continue litigating this. I mean, uh, one way or the other, this is going to hit the Supreme Court eventually. I don't think that the Bannon wing is going to let go of this. Now, I, as we are recording, Trump is in Nashville doing another one of his uh, rallies for no particular reason other than to assuage his own ego. Nice. Um, so I'm... I'm curious what he's talking about because presumably he'll be really pissed off by this you would think um i don't know if there's been any real time uh reporting on that oh wait should we do yeah. speaking of things that are pissing him off uh u.s attorneys yes let's get to that i will just say uh cnn is saying that um he did just now describe the Judge Watson's decision as judicial overreach. <laughs> that for him, that's okay. like restrained, thoughtful. <laughs> well, you have to remember he did he, he even say several, he was a bad or degrees. sick guy. No, he didn't. He didn't. Which um, you know we could we could just mention this is not something that we need to get into. But uh, even noted Trump apologist Devin Nunez, the head of the House Intelligence Committee was forced to remark today to the press that there was clearly no truth at all in uh, what Donald Trump accused President Obama of. Oh, we're, this is a quick hit on the, on the Obama tapped my phone's accusation. Yeah. And we'll probably have more to discuss on that next time we speak because I don't know how uh, James Comey is going to be testifying at a public intelligence committee hearing on Monday. That's a pretty simple one to me. Trump made that up. <laughs> he meant wiretap in quotes. No, he didn't mean he. It, it's nothing. Nothing happened. He was upset. He saw some <laughs> words. He tweeted them. That's it. That's all that happened. I don't think there's anything more to it. It's well, there's nothing more to that. I mean, it's just that there ought to be ramifications for for a president making such uh, accusations falsely. Well, I I don't know. I don't want to go too much into it in in this episode i think it's it's interesting for a whole bunch of reasons having to do with like media and government you know but i don't want to but yeah we'll, we'll we'll save that for next time so you mentioned that uh earlier in the week trump uh unceremoniously and without any warning told 46 u.s states attorneys to pack up their bags and uh, leave the building. Well, he requested their well, he, he asked them to resign. Yeah. yeah. And this is actually a normal thing it in is. some senses. Um, it, it is not normal to do it so abruptly and without giving anyone time to line up successors. Right. But uh, it, it, President Clinton did in March of his first term ask over 90 U.S. attorneys to resign. Yeah. President Obama also asked pretty much all of his uh, George W. Bush's U.S. attorneys to resign, though he also asked them to stay in place until their successors were uh, ready to be installed. Which is pretty normal. Um, yeah. And this is also distinct from the George W. Bush U.S. attorney uh, scandal where he was targeting specific U.S. attorneys for dismissal based on their political yeah. views. That was the... Um, I saw that guy on TV. What's that guy's name? Gonzalez? Alberto Gonzalez. Yeah, I saw him. I was like, what are you doing on my TV, you crook? But 
so you know that was bad I, this is just really clumsy it's sort of continuing with the theme of trump is really bad at this well yeah i mean it was there was a some question you know particularly because you know the, the big news story to come out of this is that you know one of the us attorneys that he asked to resign is the the new york southern district former now uh, southern district of new york uh, us attorney uh, preet barari who has been I don't am I pronouncing that correctly? I don't know. I think we might have an Adele Dazeem moment there. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Preet Barara. Barara? I think it's Barara. It's but definitely he, spelled Barara. I don't know how it's pronounced. But he but had no. he had previously asked called Trump personally to ask him if he could stay on. No, and no, Trump no, 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 I mean, you, you, you've got the story there wrong. He I do? invited him to Trump Tower. Trump yeah, invited him to. Yes. Yeah, oh, invited it, him I got to it backwards. That's be even super, better than than I thought. It would be right. very unprofessional for the U.S. attorney to call the president elect and ask. Yeah, him I to suppose. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Well, because he's he'd been a he's been a quite high profile prosecutor. But we're yeah. burying the lead here because this was very yeah. unusual. Preet Bharara declined to submit his resignation, and so Trump yeah. had to fire him, and that is weird. Well, um, and bef- before before he fired him, the president tried to call him, which is also a big no-no, right? And Preet Bharara declined to take the call C- correctly. Well, ethically correctly, I suppose. Though I mean, I don't I don't think there's any reason why he couldn't have gone it, the the whole thing is is a it's a little cloak and dagger and there is there's a lot of speculation in uh, the Washington press a lot about, of pretty straightforward speculation yeah, about what Preet Bharara might have been investigating and, in his, in his job. and to what extent Rupert Murdoch called Trump and told him he needed yeah. to get rid of Preet Bharara because Preet Bharara was investigating him like on a right. scale of that happened to that absolutely happened where are we <laughs> yeah right? that that absolutely happened and, yeah. and maybe he asked 45 other US attorneys to resign at the same time in an attempt uh, to me for it, a it seems honestly like somebody told him that he could do that like it he was just he, like, oh, he, he I can do people. that. That yeah. well, I should do it then. You know, like let's get to, let's get on it. Um, yeah, another thing in the long list of things Trump doesn't understand is how it's important for the president not to directly communicate with or interfere with or encourage or discourage the whole Justice Department side of things. The people who make prosecutorial decisions. Law enforcement is supposed to be independent. <clears throat> Absolutely, and for very good reason. Yes. Uh, that, and you know, not only does Trump not know the whole theory of that, he's not even familiar with the tradition or the rule of thumb. And so he tried to call Preet Bharara, I don't know what to talk about. But he shouldn't have yeah, been. He, you know, remember that time Bill Clinton went to Loretta Lynch's airplane and everybody lost their minds? I, I do recall what you're talking about. That's the same thing, you know, and he shouldn't have done that. That was a bad thing that he shouldn't have done. Just like how Trump shouldn't have been trying to call Preet Bharara and have a special for word God knows with him. what reason. Um, but it, you know, it, it is potentially another example of uh, Trump and the Trump administration uh, getting directly involved in investigations into Trump and his associates. Uh, it's which... also oh, sorry. That's pretty much done. I was going to say, it's also a, one of... 
the things it touches on for me are the, these themes of incompetence, clumsiness, but also obsession with loyalty. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it seems like one of the things he cares the most about, the thing he cares the most about is personal loyalty to him. That's certainly the only explanation for his l- continued love affair with Mike Flynn. Yeah, I'd also Mike put, it Flynn, up, put in who was treated so unfairly and forced to resign <laughs> by someone under the influence of fake news. I guess. I'd also throw into that hat, um, cron- straight cronyism. Just, yeah, just like these are the guys I know, and they can donate a bunch of money to my uh, re-election slush fund, and. Uh, and I'm just going to do whatever I can to get them off the hook for things. It's that whole dictatorship potpourri, like the the that the relationship with the dictator is what matters, and whether there's so there's some people yeah. he trusts, some people he does business with, and and those are the relationships that matter. You know, you can see this in some happening already, where you know we have a Secretary of State technically Rex Tillerson and the Department of State. But really, it seems like people who want to make stuff happen meet with or get in touch with Jared Kushner or or give Jared Kushner's family corporation $400 million in the case of China recently. You know, and, and that's exactly what you're talking about, where the apparatus of state is not as important as the personal social network of the, of the you know, dictator. Well, and, and Trump has a particularly simple worldview in that regard in in that he he really seems to divide people into good people and bad people yeah well and, and honest and the definition people of and, that yeah right the, the definition of that is that good people are people who tell him things that he wants to hear and who do and, what he tells them to do and who support and, him and bad people are obviously the opposite um so you know you, you've got your rudy giuliani's and and jeff sessions and mike flynn who basically could do anything and would remain excellent people in Trump's estimation. I actually disagree with that. I think that nobody's ever permanently safe. I think he I can agree switch with that. teams yeah. anytime based on... Like, he used to love Morning Joe, and he used to talk about how he enjoyed watching Morning Joe, and he would go on their show, he would call into their show and be crazy for a few minutes to help their ratings. And and now he hates them. Well, but they and, made the cardinal sin of talking shit about him. But that's all someone needs to do is make one and, mistake. But so I'll bet if they did one soft focus promotional episode about Ivanka's clothing line, they would be honest, great people again. You know, I, I don't think he has. He expects loyalty to him, but he doesn't have any loyalty to anyone else. It's all with just, the one. I mean, there was always the exception of Ivanka. Oh no, his family is different. Uh, this is, you know, dictator. Not all of his family, though. Oh. I mean, not, not, uh, Tiffany. Well, we don't, don't need know. to bring up <laughs> Don Jr. I mean, that's mean. Look, just because he looks like a Miami Vice villain. Also, the ex-wives don't seem to get that much uh, respect. Respect. No. And well, it, but it, it does bring up the question of Kushner. Kushner. Yeah, Kushner's like one have, of his favorites of all. He really appears to be in real solid with his father-in-law. Yeah, from what I can tell, they share the same worldview and and the same uh, infinite thirst for corrupt money. They would make really good Russians. Like they well, fit it, in exactly yeah. with how Russians operate. I mean, if you share, not all Juliet... Russians, the shitty corrupt oligarch Russians, not like the. Right, nice. We are not xenophobes here. I think Russian people are awesome, but they're uh, being absolutely. ruled by a bunch of dickheads. 
like us. Yeah. Well, it's clear to me that Ivanka is his favorite. Whatever sort of angle we put on that, it's clear that he trusts her the most. He he seeks and values her opinion the most. Well, it's just just like Kushner is the the reality secretary of state. Yeah, she's kind of the reality first lady, right? I'm not even. I, I feel like she's more like the reality like. Like also Secretary of State well, or like, something. Oh, I would say I'm starting to think of higher than that. I can't. I don't know that there's ever been a parallel to how Ivanka is functioning, but she's sort of like like major domo or something. You know, she she's like yeah. his top lieutenant, his right hand person, his, his capo. If he found out that he was going to die and he could choose a successor, he would choose oh, would Ivanka. Ivanka. There's oh, no yeah. question in my mind. Yeah, now that's he, not how our system works. He he may or may not know that, but you know. So anyway, I don't know why we're. But this was about Kushner, the loyalty thing, right? Well, I'm just saying that Kushner has a, a, a different level of trust, I think, than than the non-family, the other non-family members by blood, anyway. Non-family members, I think. I think there's two levels for him, which is his children, and, and their like in-laws, and then everyone else. And that bottom level is just a permanent competition to suck up to him the most effectively. Um, shoot, I don't see how to get us to our last topic from here. Loyalty. Um, Trump something. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Let me, let me take well, this one. There, there is actually, I, I think, can get a, there. an element of loyalty there. Yeah, we got it. We, the, here, we've got two teams. Well, we were talking about how he trusts Jared and he trusts his inner circle more than other people, sort of regardless of any other considerations such as expertise or experience. Right. Uh, another member of that inner circle is noted white supremacist and human piece of shit, Steve Bannon. Friend of the pod. No, um... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so so one of the things that struck me recently was um, on a previous episode we had talked about this guy, McMaster, who was brought in to be the... Um, National Security. What the yeah. director of National like Intelligence, the DNI, is that him? He's the new. He's the new National Security. Oh, he's the new advisor. Mike Flynn. He so like, he's the new National Security. He, he was like the sixth or seventh cho- ranked choice to replace Mike Flynn right. after so everyone else that rejected again. it. So after everyone else rejected him for not letting them uh, pick their own people. Right. So we have McMaster, who's the new National Security Advisor, and. He wanted to come Lo in. Lo and behold. Yeah, he wanted to come in and he wanted to make some staffing decisions about who would work for him. And he was overruled by Bannon and Kushner, um, which is... Who are noted national security experts. I mean, this is extremely troubling because, because for two reasons. First of all, it just continues to support that theme that Trump doesn't care at all about anything except personal loyalty, cronyism, you know, who's closest to him. And... It also undercuts, you know, we were so relieved, or I feel like it's fair to say there was a lot of relief about McMaster being this election yes. for the for the NSA because he seemed very intelligent, he seemed very experienced, very thoughtful, and like somebody who would have a cool head and make good decisions. And He, he didn't seem like a literally insane person. No, like quite the opposite. I mean, yeah. I, I was very imp- I didn't know anything about him, but as I learned of him, about him in this context... Every source I looked at on the left and on the right, everybody was like, this guy's a solid guy. This is a solid dude. He's very well so, regarded. So, like, that's pretty good. But, so, 
to the extent I was relieved then, I am now not relieved. Because it turns out he's not going to be... I mean, this is like a basic decision about if he can make staffing decisions or not. And this was about one of his chief deputies. Yeah. You know, this was, uh, you know, which you would think that that would be something he would really be allowed to have a hand in. Well, the quote here is, And just last Friday, McMaster tried to remove Ezra Cohen-Watnick, a 30-year-old Flynn acolyte, from the post of NSC Intelligence Director and was overruled by Bar- by Bannon and Jared Kushner. So that's, you know, this is someone... Yeah, he should be able to decide who works in those roles in his organization. I don't mean to be an ageist or anything like that, but not knowing anything about this uh, this gentleman... I mean, do, do, I don't really feel that comfortable with a 30-year-old overseeing uh, an important intelligence position. I don't just, know if I'm with you on that. I, I can imagine there being a good 30-year-old person to do that job. I can imagine there being a good 50-year-old, you know, like... Uh, I'm probably being ridiculous. Well, I, I, to me, it just stands out so much more that if McMaster thinks this guy should go, I, I tend to think he must have a good reason for that. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, what uh, it makes uh, me think is that is that uh, McMaster is is another Tillerson in this position. He's just a, a well, shadow yeah, guy. Absolutely. Just to just to sort of like stand around and look pretty until they can dissolve the entire department and just have the president run everything or whatever it is they expect to do. I basically think you're right, and that's what's very troubling about this. That it, it rather than it being you know, when Trump nominated McMaster or selected McMaster, I was thinking this is a good sign. We're gonna have somebody in there who knows what they're talking about. And now it's much more likely to be that Trump is just looking for somebody palatable who will get people off his back while he continues trying to take apart and destroy the government. Well, I think that um, one of the ways we'll be able to measure this is to see how long McMaster stays in the job. Well, yeah, one of the I saw a tweet, I forget from whom, where they were like, he's now it's sort of it's a competition between wanting to stay and do what he can to prevent disaster versus having integrity and wanting to sort of use his um, position, have a meaningful resignation that would actually get through to people that something was wrong. You know, because if he stays... I I think about this with Sean Spicer, too. Every time I see him doing a press conference, I'm like, Sean, quit. Like, why are you doing this to yourself? But, you know, if you do it for too long, you lose credibility. Well, I, I do I do think there's a difference. I mean, Sean Spicer is obviously, like, prostituting himself. I mean, he's he's going out there and making an utter he fool just of seems, himself and the government every whenever day. Whenever I watch him, it's like I, can, it's like I can see the agony that his soul is in having to do the job that he's doing. Yeah, and I'm not sure. excusing. You know, he's he's like he's aiding and abetting a fascist authoritarian <laughs> regime, and he's a monster, and he should burn in hell, and he should go. You know, he should be tried at the Hague and all that. But like, as the young lady told him in the Apple Store, yeah, he's a monster. But <laughs> but I don't think it, it, it's there's two kinds of them at least, right? Where there, there's Bannon who is a monster, and he loves it, and he's like, this is what the, this is a life. I love hurting people. I love making people afraid and sad. This is wonderful. Spicer is a collaborator. Well, Spicer's like, this is what I don't understand. I don't understand why he keeps doing it. He could stop. He can find another job. Spicer, he's like a Vichy. I know, but... 
I mean, I see what you're saying, except there, the thing about the Vichy French was the Nazis were there with tanks. Like, it makes sense to me why you would have that moral failing. Why some people would. But, like, I don't know what they have on Sean. I don't know why we're talking about Sean Spicer so much, but... I don't think they have anything on him. You don't think Trump has a guy standing outside his door being like, go to work today? I think Trump hates Sean Spicer and thinks he's doing a bad job and is a dick to him all the time for that reason. So maybe it's it's Pence who has that guy outside his door. I don't think anybody... This is... I mean, this is, like, my own personal pet peeve, but I'm like, <laughs> I, I do not have an answer to the question, why does Sean Spicer keep doing this? I don't but, know why. But my point, my point was that with uh, McMaster and with Mattis, you know, guys like that, um, they, they're actually probably doing legitimate work. Oh. To, you know, you know particularly, particularly Mattis. Um, and so, you know, I, I, they're, a, they're not destroying their own credibility and integrity. Well, yet. To, to at least to this point, uh, in anywhere in the same universe as as Sean, Sean yeah, I mean, yeah, I definitely don't think there's 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 not that much similarity, except in the sense that there are people in this administration where it seems like it's not a natural fit for them, and I yes. wonder how they're making that decision about staying or going. Um, I mean, let, let, let's not give Spicer too much credit. I don't either. want to I mean, give him any a, credit. He, he was the long-term spokesperson for the RNC. Plus, he hates Dippin' so, Dots. I mean, Who he, hates he Dippin' has, Dots? Like, it's insane. He, weird, he does have a weird fetish against uh, Dippin' Dots. He's a weird dude. But, um, but yeah, just and one last hit on the McMaster or Mattis thing. There's, I feel like we're in this really strange position where I'm not always on board with the stuff that our military gets up to or the stuff that our intelligence agencies get up to. And sure. so, like, I guess I just want to call out what a terrible situation we're in that, like, we're not even able to talk about, you know, like, Trump decided to ramp up drone strikes. And there's a whole, th- we could yes. definitely talk about that. But we're so much more worried about just, like, having somebody in the chain somewhere who, if he wakes up one day and is like, I'm in a bad mood, let's nuke someone who would be like, hey, maybe let's not do that. Like, we're at that level of fear of what Trump might do if there's not some reasonable person around. And it sucks. Oh, well, absolutely. Guys, I'm beginning to think he might not be a great president. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you, are are you, would you describe yourself as a uh, Trump regretter? (laughs) I definitely regret that he exists. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know... No, I well, I am no, no, no. I agree with you though. I'm, I'm quite thankful that that Mattis is there. I mean, he seems. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's what it comes to back to the McMath- the staffing thing, where it's like, I was thankful that they were there, but if the deal is that Bannon and Kushner can overrule them at will, then I'm not that thankful because then they're nothing. Then they're stage dressing. You know, we were talking about stage dressing before. Then they're just like generals. He likes to get his picture taken with. Do you yeah, think I that... mean, I, Mattis, he, he um, seems to have kind of left alone so far, um, and has, and you know, he, he has uh, in a number of occasions across the Potomac public in the Pentagon. Secretary of Defense James Mattis had to withdraw his choice for Undersecretary for Policy after meeting disapproval from the same duo that is Kushner and Bannon. I withdraw. I withdraw yeah. my statement. Plus, Mattis wasn't allowed to get Elliot Abrams either, or was that Tillerson? That was I mean, these guys are just getting wraithed. Like, it's beginning to seem more and more clear that Trump 
is not that it, the situation isn't Trump saying, I really respect these guys and I want to be guided by their expertise. But he's more like these guys make a good part of the part of the set for the photo. And then me and Jared and Steve will just decide what to do about everything. Well, right. Sure. I mean, we're not even touching on the incredibly troubling bit of news that Rex Tillerson is currently on his first major foreign trip as Secretary of State, at least in theory, to Asia and South Korea and Japan in particular, which are uh, areas of extreme concern at the moment, particularly with regard to North Korea and to a somewhat lesser degree China. And for the first time in anyone's memory, the Secretary of State did not allow a press pool to accompany uh, him or her. I think um, Rex so Tillerson have... is, is him. Well, but there were previous secretaries of state who were who were not him. Name two. So. No, I mean know? Madeleine Albright and Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Um. Anyway, my my, my point standing that it's it's extremely troubling that we don't have any press. Well, the there press are there. They're to just report they back just to are us. going on their own initiative. You know, they can just go to Japan. So I mean, well, they flew on airplanes yeah. to press those are countries, reporting on but it, whether or not they'll have any. Right, whether or not they'll have any access to what's going on and be able to report to us in an objective manner about what sort of foreign policy we're discussing and are implementing is very much in In a way, the saddest part of the whole thing was that Sean Spicer's explanation was that they needed to save money. Which, like, that's obviously yeah. bullshit, but, like, that's, like... That's sad bullshit. When it, when it's like <laughs> yeah. the State Department like is too poor to afford the big airplane. Well, they are banking big cuts. I know, but like that's so that sucks. Well, so you know, I feel convinced that the situation is not great. So in that context, how are we staying sane? Andrew, I think you're the most optimistic oh my of God, us. Yes. We, well, I'm going with the the bread and circuses approach this week. Um, I met up with Ben over the weekend, and we ate a ridiculous amount of food. And now we spring training that. has begun, and uh, I am enjoying the circus of baseball and not paying attention to important things that are affecting my life. This is a depressing. So that's my approach. <laughs> How did that work out for Rome? Or the Christians in the Colosseum. Yeah, not great. Not great. Not, not very great. Still, though, I mean... But no, I, our, here in America, I didn't learn that, so it's okay. So we're, That was Andrew, resident yeah, optimist. Well, you know, I heard I heard uh, in, in taking advantage of, of time with friends and uh, enjoying travel and new experiences. <laughs> um, and baseball. Cheesesteaks. Cheesesteaks were head. Mr. Met. We we enjoyed uh, quite a number of of different culinary delights. I'm staying sane uh, by enjoying uh, the arts uh, in the form of Saturday Night Live and other. Been watching the Great British Baking Show. Ooh yeah, yeah. nice. It's, which is an excellent. So show. basically, what you're saying, just distraction. And you know, I, I try to stay engaged with um, calling my representatives, calling my senators. I've been calling different offices. You can like you can call the Department of Homeland Security and you can call people like that and they'll answer. So I've been trying to branch out and I I have to confess that I have not been very good about calling Pat Toomey recently because he has 
successfully made it so impossible to reach him that uh, I've I've kind of given up, which is uh, a failing on my part. Well, that doesn't sound... Can you rephrase that as a way that you're staying sane? No. Like, you could say, I'm accepting the... <laughs> Defeat. Uh, no. <laughs> the, like, irrevocable moral failing of Representative Pat Toomey. Is, he's a representative, right? Or is he a senator? Oh, he's a senator. Lord in heaven. Mm. <laughs> he, uh, he actually we, represents we, you, even. Yeah, he's a senator. We we share an alma mater. He's a well-educated man. Uh, oh my god! And, uh, back definitely a the backdoor brag of the episode right there, <laughs> <laughs> dude. <laughs> well, I just want. Oh you know, man! They, uh, some people I feel are just stupid, so they have an excuse. Right, you understand the part about how you said he, you share an alma mater, <laughs> and he's a well-educated man. I, yeah, okay, that didn't sound so great. <laughs> but I, I think you understand what I was trying to say. Yeah, you were trying to say you're a very smart guy. <laughs> no, you, you don't have to be smart to be well-educated. Well, that is absolutely That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. You, you, generally, you have to be privileged. did Bannon go to some good school, allegedly? He went to some, yeah, and then he he went to some... I can't remember where he went to college, um, and then he went to uh, Harvard Business oh, School, I believe. Or was it Law well, School? Well, we're wandering off the path here. So, did... um, so staying sane. I would say I'm staying sane largely um, due to uh, various forms of alcohol and pharmaceuticals. All legal, I will add. <laughs> so to recap, we have bread and circuses... Bread and circuses and, bread and, circuses and bread and circuses. Well, and like alcohol and drugs. <laughs> oh, and <laughs> drugs yeah. and alcohol, yeah. So, um, hedonism is how we're staying. <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, or Epicureanism. I right. So a- Andrew's going with the with the Colosseum. I'm more in the Dionysus. Mm. Mm, yeah, we could do a whole or... episode on the Apollo- Apollonian and Dionysian. That's interesting. This is very. I think of this as a very Dionysian administration in the old in the Nietzsche sense. Oops, did uh, I do too much he... English? I'm I'm sorry. It's just I'm so well educated. <laughs> I, I would make the I would make the argument that that did it way more than I did. <laughs> Everybody I went to school with is extremely well educated. <laughs> well, again, I said you don't have to be smart; you just have to be privileged. It's not a good thing. You are the one who brought up Dionysus. Well, that is so, true. Tomato, tomato. All right, let's ramp. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> what was so funny that we said before at the beginning, Ben? You said, "Oh, uh, New York. So the New York subway is the New York of subway." What was that? <laughs> I said that the New York transportation system is in many ways the New York of transportation. So the sanity system. check podcast right. in terms of its biodiversity. In many ways in the sanity check of podcasts. <laughs> well, but if you unpack what I said, I think it's true. Well, you are very educated. <laughs> New York is among the most diverse cities in the world, and I'm I'm guessing based on the evidence that the biodiversity in its muck is extremely diverse as well. But this message brought to you by the New York City Tourism Board. 
(laughs) (laughs) The most biodiverse subway muck in the world. (laughs) Hey, I, I, I love it. I wish I was there right now. It's pretty great. All right. Um, thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes at the Google Play Store and at our website, sanitycheckpod.com. Make sure to tune in next week. And in the meantime, keep on resisting and persisting. <laughs>